Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Today we are discussing Damien Chazelle's First Man, the fourth in the fourth and, as for now, final installment in our Damien Chazelle retrospective series. This is your co-host Corbin. I'm Alan from Chicago. And we reviewed this movie a lot sooner than I thought. Mind you, it was on our calendar, but I, for some reason, thought this was coming out next month. Yeah, uh, this is an odd movie. Um, Not only did it come out in somewhat of an an odd time, but yeah, that is true. This kind of snuck up on me, too. I didn't realize that we were so close to the release of First Man until we started Guy and Madeline. I said, oh, we got a couple weeks. And the next thing I know, we're I'm at home and we're recording La La Land. And I said, crap, First Man comes out next week. And it's also not a project that Damien Chazelle wrote himself. Nope. This is all kinds of weird. Yeah, I made a mistake at the beginning of the last podcast and said, leading up to this November's First Man. Oh, and yeah. then it's like, oh, surprise, you're seeing it in less than a week. Right. And it was like, oh, whoa. Okay, <laughs> that that took me off guard. But yeah, this is Damien Chazelle's first non-musical movie, and he also didn't write this one. It's based off of a book. Yes, it was based off a book by a man of the name James R. Henson. Uh, what's funny is Damien Chazelle actually signed on to do this project not long after Whiplash came out. Uh, really? Yeah, it was... Now, the... Origin of the script dates back to about 2003 because Clint Eastwood bought the help by the rights for a film adaptation of this book. Uh, but he said that he's he stated that he's not really going to like be a part of it. He just wanted to buy the rights. Well, Universal and DreamWorks picked it up, and then Chazelle signed on about 2014 ish, and then he went on to film La La Land after writing a 72 after writing a 72 page treatment which he then gave the uh, basically the majority of the script writing uh, responsibility to a man named uh, Josh Singer, who's done Spotlight and uh, The Post. And so he more or less just did the whole script by himself with the treatment that Damien Chazelle had given him. And then after he got done, after Chazelle got done with La La Land, he went right into doing this. So it's kind of an interesting wow. story that, I mean, after like one... I guess technically one really big movie after Guy Madeline. He's doing a pretty big studio picture now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. His pictures keep getting essentially bigger and bigger with who's cast in it, right. who is producing it. Uh, did you notice it was produced by Steven Spielberg? I did not, but I guess that doesn't, I guess it isn't too big of a surprise. Yep. Steven Spielberg was. Uh, producing this movie he was backing it so Chazelle is in I mean after 19 Oscar nominations and nine Oscar wins with your essentially two first big movies like real true theatrical movies and not even really wide distribution movies either I mean for the most part La La Land was but this one is definitely has a wide distribution in every movie from now on will. But it's a fairly quick turnaround, I think, from going from La La Land and then to First Man. Some directors do have a decent turnaround time that's not too long, but some of them are fairly long. I think 
Uh, and that could just be how long it takes for them to get the project together. Uh, like Christopher Nolan did Dark Knight Rises, then Interstellar, and then Dunkirk. But those all took place not that close to each other, it seemed like. Right. It's like for him, it was like every couple of years, there'd be a new movie, a new Nolan movie. It's, there seems to be some kind of a trek here with uh, Whiplash and La La Land because Whiplash came out in 2014, then La La Land in 2016, 2018, we have First Man. So it's kind of like a, yeah. every two year kind of a thing, which makes sense. Takes about a year for a movie to film and another six months or maybe so to, for pre production, maybe another six months for post production. So it kind of makes sense that, you know, every two years we get a new film from a director from these two directors. Uh, so, yeah, maybe we'll have this regular uh, schedule of every two years we get a Shazam movie. And maybe in between there, we also get maybe a, another Nolan movie or something like that. Who knows? Yeah, that would, that would be cool. Mm-hmm. And going in, I went into First Man completely blind. I had some notion that it was about the moon, the first moon landing back in the 60s, Neil Armstrong. I didn't see a single drop of footage at all. I really? never saw a trailer. Wow. Yeah. I remember I did see one trailer. I forget what movie it was for, but I remember seeing one trailer and that was when, because I knew that Chazelle was directing First Man. But aside from it, him, aside from that knowledge that he, this is his next picture, I didn't really know much else. And then I got to see the trailer. And even then with that one trailer, I think it was probably the first trailer that dropped. I still didn't know very much except for the fact that it's about the first moon landing. That's about same. Uh, that's about the uh, extent of my knowledge as well. I mean, I guess I had a bit more than what you did because I had, I did get to see the trailer. But even then, not much had I known going into this movie. I didn't actively seek out like I had with La La Land beforehand because I also kind of wanted to be surprised because I wanted to see what Chazelle could do with his first essentially drama. Uh, it's a new thing for him. It's not a musical anymore. It's a drama. It's a straight drama from at least for this movie, which is not even written by him. And he's only come in to really direct and help produce. Right. His longtime friend and constant composer for every movie, Justin Hurwitz, is back. Yes. Yes, that is very true. He did come back for this, which is very interesting because I looked up how they did the score for this. Uh, Have you heard of the instrument called a theremin? No. Okay. Neither had I until I was looking up some background info. Okay, so what a theremin is, is really, really cool. Essentially, it's like this box with two antennas sticking out on either side. So when, so with the player, with the player's right hand, they control like the volume. So there's like a hoop on one side and you kind of raise your hand and lower your hand. And that, of course, raises and lowers the volume. Your other hand kind of does like more or less the bulk of the work because that's the pitch and of, of the sound that it's creating. And so you move your hand... I just up and around all sorts of stuff. And it can make different sound. It can make a sound of that same other different pitch, right? You do not touch the instrument aside from turning it on. It's all done through an electromagnetic field. So your hands are more or less conductors and they just piece together the electrical field and you can control make sounds that way with your hands just by waving them around. It's really interesting. That is very interesting. But he would have had to have used that in conjunction with like a live orchestra, right? Like yes, a full yes. orchestra? Yeah, no, there are only a couple moments uh, kind of when those like alien-y sounds come in that, yeah. are, that you've that you've heard from, or I guess now it's just kind of a cliche to use those kind of sounds. That's a theremin. What he had to do is he also, re- for a full orchestra, he would also record, at least the parts when the score was being kind of shaky, he would record violins and all, all the strings um, from the different players on like this box. I forget what it's called. 
But what he would do is he would take the box and put it into like the stage and supposedly right where the player would be and then would record. Well, of course, that you get a bunch of contrast with that because he kind of also misaligned them, which is exactly what he wanted. Very interesting. Hmm. That's what kind of gave the shakiness of the scores. Everything was kind of contrasting when they were going back and forth. It's very interesting how he recorded the soundtrack. Well, he definitely seems to be very skilled, very knowledgeable of how to compose a score, considering he's won, what, two Oscars for these movies? Yeah, he, yeah. For both so, movies that he's been nominated for, which is La La Land and Whiplash, possibly yeah. this one, well, I guess we'll see when the Oscars come around, but uh, both of them he has gotten Oscars for, like won the Oscar. Yeah. I don't see him getting the Oscar for this movie. There are some great compositions, but I don't think it's really noticeable until the latter half of the movie, but we'll talk about that. Yeah, yeah, we'll definitely talk about that when we get there. Okay, I've also got the cinema score for it here. B+, which is lower than I was expecting, I guess. That was definitely lower than I was expecting as well, because Whiplash and La La Land were so well-received, and... This movie, I was surprised. It, I was expecting an A minus at the least. Yeah, I was. Th- I mean, I guess it isn't terrible. It, the score is okay, but for a cinema score, uh, usually we see movies get a, usually are in the A's to a some extent. I mean, this isn't all that bad, a B plus, but still, it's quite low compared to. I guess anything else. To be fair, this said, I guess this is also uh, Damien Chazelle's first movie in CinemaScore because Whiplash and La La Land were not recorded. Right. And in some ways, I guess I can see it getting a B plus and probably we should be thankful it does have a B plus right. at the most. This really isn't a movie that is going to attract mainstream audiences like La La Land would, which is a musical bridging the gap between all generations essentially this movie is a period piece a biopic about it's a two and a half hour movie about landing on the moon um my dad was alive he was eight years old he watched them walk on the moon he understood what was going on at the time as much as an eight-year-old could and i could see that um reflected in my audience most of my audiences were in their 60s i would say right yeah i guess it does make a lot of sense uh not very many people who are going to be going to the movies quite often are going to be i guess very excited for this one who knows yeah i'm guessing more older people are going to be curious about this because it is about the moon landing you really don't get very many movies aside from documentaries about the moon landing so perhaps that is definitely a part of it as too yeah, so uh, that's most likely it. The demographic is going to be different. There was not very many people in my audience. Um, I could probably, I could honestly probably count them on two hands. Yeah, same with me. Now, to be fair, I did go on a Thursday night at the earliest showing at 7 o'clock. Uh, so that I'm sure is part of it, not Friday night. So I maybe had 20 people in my audience. And the theater that I was in was huge. I think it's the biggest in town. It sees about 400 or so. But yeah, 20 people in the theater, perhaps that just has to do with the time that I went. Perhaps not. I don't know. I saw it Friday at noon and yeah, mostly older people that were probably retired. Uh, I had the day off. My dad had the day off. I said, let's go Friday at noon. Let's try and beat the crowds. 
definitely beat the crowds. Yeah. Um, nobody, not, not many people there at all. Uh, but nevertheless, it was neat that I got to go with my dad because he said, oh, wow, I remember seeing this on television and later on in the movie, they said it was watched by 400 million people, which is insane on television right. and maybe even more on radio. So it was interesting to and fun to get his perspective. Uh, he's like, oh, wow, I, I actually forgot some of those events or I didn't know the backstory to that and he said, yeah, I remember seeing that. And um, we, we do probably get some real footage um, of certain scenes throughout the movie, I would assume. Um, but yeah, very cool to to experience that with him. Right. All right, Alan, are you ready to give them a plot? I am, yes. Well, as per typically, uh, as usual as ever, Spoilers ahead from this moment on. We've, of course, refrained from that. But now this is where we're going to start getting into the meat of the film and talk about all of his little bits. So here's a summary. The year is 1961. Before Neil Armstrong was the Armstrong that we know today, he began his career as flying a plane into Earth's atmosphere. Armstrong reaches into the sky with the, where the gravity from Earth weakens, uh, which is about to send Armstrong into space. But he's able to regain control and fly back to Earth, landing in the Mojave Desert. Back at home, it is revealed that Armstrong's daughter has a brain tumor, and now no more than a few days or maybe minutes in screen time later, she dies, and we see her and we see them lowering her coffin into the grave. During the reception of this funeral, we get to see Armstrong's first more or less mental breakdown, or maybe just an emotional response to this, because beforehand we haven't really seen him really do much except for just look sad. And this is the first moment where we, moment where we actually get to see him break down is in his office. Well, not long after that, he sees an ad, or I guess for he sees a newscast where it's revealed that NASA is looking for astronauts or people to apply for this new project called the Gemini Project, which Armstrong does. He signs up for it, and there he meets Elliot and Ed, and they all kind of become pretty close friends. And Janet, Janet Armstrong, Neil's wife, is once again pregnant with another child. But in 1965, the Soviets are the first one, or the first to more or less walk in space, and where they they orbit around the Earth in the atmosphere and are able to go outside the spacecraft, which causes the Americans to do the impossible, or to think about doing the impossible, which is to land on the moon. Things get worse, however, when Elliot's plane crashes after he when Elliot's plane crashes when he comes when he came in too slow for the runway during the funeral reception for Elliot. Armstrong leaves Janet behind and has and as this has been one of too many funerals for him since about a year ago when they attended four more due to deaths of Armstrong's colleagues. But at points in the story, Armstrong continues to see visions of his daughter when tragedy strikes. This is one of those moments. Armstrong moves. Armstrong must move on, though. He loads on. He loads into the capsule for the Gemini Eight launch, and at a project that unfortunately goes haywire when they begin to spinning out. When they begin spinning out of control, the problem this time is that they are in danger of re-entering the atmosphere, where they could burn up. Unlike Armstrong, when he flew his plane, where he had the potential of leaving the atmosphere, he releases the Agena, where the dock, the caps, where the capsule docked to, and is able to return, but is lambasted for his quick and poor decision of releasing Agena, launching it into space. Ed soon joins the Apollo program, the program that will eventually get America to the moon. While this is happening, Neil is recruited to be one of the men who is recruited to be a representative, more or less, for the at the White House. Tragedy strikes once again when, as it, when a fire starts in the cockpit during a test for one of the Apollo missions, which Ed is a part of. Now, being that there's a fire in the uh, in the, the cabin, there is an explosion which cut which kills all three of the men that were in there. 
1968, Neil is training to land on the moon, land the module on the moon, but fails and exclaims that we need to fail down here so we don't fail up there. Controversy strikes up as the public begins to question the money that is being spent on getting us to the moon and why we're doing something that we know nothing about when, there are, when people are still struggling back on Earth. In an interview, Armstrong is asked about what he wishes he could bring up there on the mission, which responds with more fuel. It is time for Neil to leave so we can board the Apollo level Apollo 11 mission. Got it. But is forced to buy. But is forced by his wife to tell his kids that there is a possibility, a great possibility, that he may not return due to the danger of this mission. Which is followed by the letter that is to be read by the president, if that is so. Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins climb aboard the Apollo 11 spacecraft, spacecraft and blast off to. Blast off towards the moon. Buzz and Neil take the lunar lunar landing module and begin their descent towards the surface. Neil has to pilot it manually as he descend as he decides to glide over a crater with little fuel left, knowing that at any moment he could abort the mission. He is successful, however, and lands on the moon and radios Houston, saying the eagle has landed. Armstrong exits the module and steps out onto the powdery lunar surface in a quiet yet still serene atmosphere. It's still, it's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, Neil says, as he stands in the beauty of the powdery hills and small earth in, this, in the distance. Before leaving, however, Neil walks over to Crater, pulls out the bracelet of his daughter that she gave to him in the opening, and drops it. The men return to Earth and are kept in quarantine for about a month to make sure, they did, to make sure that they didn't carry any diseases from the moon. Janet comes to visit Armstrong, and they both sit next to the glass window, next to a glass window that is separating them, and they touch hands. They try to touch hands as credits roll. So, listeners, you can tell this is quite the detailed movie. It is Chazelle's longest movie at clocking in at around two hours, 21 minutes or so. Yeah, yeah. It's very, it's just kind of like a, uh, I mean, obviously, it's a biopic of Neil Armstrong. Uh, That being said, it's also more or less an epic in terms of, I guess, a character study of this man who is Neil Armstrong, which is very interesting that uh, our boy... Damien Chazelle picked up and decided to do this project. Yes, it's absolutely an epic following. Uh, the The main protagonist, our hero of the story, Neil Armstrong, not to be confused with Lance Armstrong. He was the cyclist, the disgraced uh, cyclist. <laughs> right. Different, <laughs> different people. Much different yes. people. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting you use that word epic because when we walked out of the theater, I saw this with my dad, and he said this was an epic drama. Oh, yeah, definitely. And it absolutely is. Uh, we follow our character through highs and lows, and ultimately, we know what the end goal is and what will happen, but he doesn't. And it's fascinating to uh, follow the intimacies of Neil Armstrong's life. I didn't know anything about Neil Armstrong. Yeah, I, and I wouldn't even go as far as to say that most of the general public probably don't either yes there's a book about it but i mean who's really wanting to read the book especially now since it's been so many years since the since the landing of apollo 11 and now we have a movie that's being made about it which makes it a bit more accessible now right but yeah very very good question i mean who who would have read about who's who would have read up about neil armstrong in the first place other than the fact that he is the first man to walk on the moon yeah uh yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure many people have, oh, yeah. but as of recently, it's not in the public zeitgeist right. of what is going on. And I, I really didn't know anybody's names going in, except when they said Buzz Aldrin, I said, okay, 
heard of Buzz Aldrin before. Um, there is a neat uh, space museum in Hutchison, Kansas oh, called yes. the Cosmosphere. Yes. And they have pieces from Apollo 11 and they have the full capsule from Apollo 13. And you read about some of the stuff there, but there's so much you forget. And I just <laughs> didn't ever think about it until this movie came out. And even then I didn't know much. But jumping into the movie, it has a very intense opening. Yeah. Which is so interesting I, because it's there really isn't much dialogue and it's for the most part told all through visuals. We own all that we really need to know is that he's trying to go as far up into the atmosphere as he possibly can, but then runs into trouble where he's about to launch into the atmosphere and into space if he's not careful. Right. And I okay. Ryan Gosling is back from La La Land, so I'm thinking that this will not be the last time we see Gosling in a Chazelle movie. Right. Usually directors, Hitchcock did it, Christopher Nolan's done it, where they really work well with certain actors and they will bring them back for certain movies. Right. I really like that. I think it's really cool. Uh, Tim Burton, Johnny Depp, done many projects together. But we, uh, we're we introduced to Neil Armstrong and in this very intense situation, he's in this closed space. He's flying some kind of ship up to the atmosphere, and it is just super intense. With uh, thankfully, the camera never made me nauseous. This was a very real possibility, right? But it's not really that they're shaking the camera per se. It's that the subject on screen is being shook, and the camera is essentially filming that. Um, thankfully, they didn't pull a Batman Forever and shake both at different times. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, regardless, it is extremely intense. I found myself multiple times in this movie, uh, just my my grip tightening, my body tensing up, and I didn't even realize it until the scene was kind of leveling out. And I was like, whoa, I am seriously tensed up right now. Right, right. Yeah, but this scene, I was thinking to myself, all right, I've seen this before. Namely, Interstellar, this hope, they kind of open with similar they kind of have similar openings where something goes wrong while the while the main yeah. character is flying a plane uh now this movie does a bit something a bit different because with interstellar it kind of just cuts in and out with what yeah. we kind of just understand what happened this one is kind of integral to the story because this theme of uh is he going to make it out of the situation is he going to fly up into the atmosphere or is he going to come back we'll come back a couple of times in the movie uh not only that but also takes that which we saw in interstellar and kind of continues on with it and there are a number of sequences that are kind of like this in this film. And from what I could tell and from what I could understand, they're kind of played out in real time. These are very long sequences that are showing Neil Armstrong having to act in the moment and go on for quite a long time. It almost gives a feeling, if that was what they're going for, that it is being played out in real time. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good point you bring up. It is essentially being played out in real time, which does allow the intensity to really build right. and draw itself out. And you'll notice that all of these spaceship shots um, are always in the cockpit until the launch of Apollo 11. Then we get to see the ship launch and we don't go inside the cockpit until they're pretty much out of Earth's atmosphere. Right, right. It seems like, uh, which I thought was a, a well done idea because we do get a lot of in the cockpit type shots. But I really do have to commend Ryan Gosling's acting in just this first scene because 
uh, the expressions of he is just being worn down. It is extremely intense. It's really draining. And I get all of that from his face. And uh, Gosling is usually a visual actor. He uh, is usually a man of few words. And he is also usually a very placid person. He is not a very expressive guy in most of his movies, but he still is able to convey a lot of emotions that way. So he's really interesting actor that way but his acting also really draws me into this scene as well and uh, but it does set up it's important that it sets up neil armstrong is cool under pressure even when things go extremely wrong he's not going to uh he's not going to fail he's going to go out you know he's going to die trying essentially and he is still able to figure out how to get himself out of really difficult situations, which we see him do time and again. That's what sets him above the rest and eventually makes him the captain of Apollo 11. Right. And this thing that I found to be just interesting overall with how Gosling portrayed Neil Armstrong, or maybe just Armstrong, his char- Armstrong's characteristics in general, is that he feels like he has a, everything together. Everything's very proper with him. He doesn't really, yeah, like you said, he doesn't really say very much. He's always very cool under pressure, but there are certain moments where we do get to see his character like take in tragedy, namely in this opening scene when his daughter dies and she dies of uh, that tumor that they tried to, I think, I think I'm, I'm believing it was chemotherapy, but if I thought, saw the sheet right and read it right, it said cobalt therapy, which I don't really Some know much about. Old. Yeah, it's like some probably some old original therapy. Right, right. And then we get this moment in this opening where he goes into his office after playing it cool, which I'm surprised he was able to do uh, until this moment. And he breaks yeah. down crying, I think, for the first time. I think this might be one of the few times, one of the only times we ever see him cry in this whole movie. It's this one yeah. moment, which makes sense. Uh, it's so interesting that he's able to convey uh, so many emotions because he's a very complex character. He may seem like he has everything together, but in reality, we kind of get to, we get to see that this is not necessarily true. Yeah, that is true. He, his interior life when he's alone, we see he has kind of more volatile emotions. Some are necessary, like some are understandable. I'd say most of them are in this movie, but like, Later on when he's on the phone, you hear him like kicking the door or something or kicking his desk and getting frustrated about something. But yeah, in this scene uh, where he seems like he's not in control, he is able to kind of get back in control and stay cool, but he's not able to control his daughter's illness. And then eventually she passes away early on. And I found it to be a a well done emotional scene. Uh, We kind of spend time with him breaking down crying uh with those family dynamics so this movie one thing i will say that it does right is it does take its time yes to yes establish his character his family life his position within nasa essentially so all of that is fairly well done and i would say yes it for the most part this long running time is warranted i think maybe towards the end or maybe in the second act we could have tightened some things up just to get to the moon landing a little quicker but that's just kind of a nitpick yeah if there's one thing that does really well it's pace for the most part, I think that there are some moments where the pacing kind of goes a bit too quick for things to make a lot of sense, or maybe I think one of my bigger issues a little bit later on, it sometimes will switch tones real fast and not in the most pleasant way. 
I get that, you know, they're going for, they're trying to tell the story in a way that they can fill so much time without boring the audience because they do a really good job at keeping pace while skipping forward and skipping a lot of details in between times because we talk about like eight years worth of stuff, worth of a man's life in a matter of two and a half hours, less than two and a half hours, which is pretty hard to do when you have a man like Neil Armstrong. I think for the most part, they do a pretty good job, but there are moments, I think, where the tone will just kind of shift shift real quick and it, it almost catches... It, for a couple of these, it caught me off guard. It was like, oh, okay, we're talking about this now instead of what happened before. For the most part, it's not that good, big of a deal. Uh, I wouldn't. I would put, probably put this criticism above... A nitpick because there are times where not necessarily I was pulled out of the movie, but I'm just like, okay, well, I see that. But at the same time, it never grabbed me and pulled me way out where I'm just like, well, wait just a minute now. I think for the most part, it does a really good job at this. And thankfully, I was never bored yes, throughout this same, movie. Same. I always found everything going on interesting. This easily could have became boring, though. Right. Uh, they could have just went off on different tangents that really weren't necessary. They easily this could have been derailed in the hands of somebody who is less skilled with writing or storytelling, such as. Uh, so thankfully, that was never the case. It easily could right. have been though. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that Chazelle and the writer have an understanding that. For the most part, they're just going to show the most important bits of his life leading up to the moon landing and leave all the stuff that they don't need to talk about out, which makes which creates a very interesting story because we'll get into these themes of death and risk and overcoming all of these obstacles and how everything in the movie, even though uh, some things were left out, obviously, it still points all to this one theme, which is, like I said, death and risk and all sorts of stuff like that. Very interesting that this movie was able to keep track of all this with a two and a half hour thing with two and a half hour runtime while still keeping it simple which is something that Chazelle has always done with basically all of his movies is they he keeps them for the most part simple they are very easy to track through when you get into the deeper parts of the message and the characters they become more complex which is which makes a lot of sense because the complexity comes with the characters and how well and how how they're constructed same way with this maybe a bit denser on the story but that makes sense because it's a biopic but at the same time, it's not something that you're going to get lost in trying to follow. It does a really good job at making sure it keeps its audience on the track of where it's going. I did feel the title cards were a little too descriptive at times because they're about three lines worth of this is the location, this is the time, this is the place. Right. And I would, I, I always missed the date at the end. So I always had to lean over to my dad and I'd say, okay, now what date is it? Because it, it does kind of go quick. We start in like 61, and then all of a sudden we're in 64. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of just progress from there. But the title cards, I was more focused on learning what the project was and the location was, and then I would miss the date. But thankfully, my dad usually caught it. Right. Um, yeah, I guess maybe they probably could have left that up there just a little longer or condensed it a bit because we do have... a quite a few title cards of like this is where we're at now this is where we're at now right in typical Chazelle fashion you're not we as long as you understand that we've moved forward in time that's really only yes. you need to know the yes. dates don't necessarily matter I mean you can fact check it all you want uh, I guess yeah. you want to but for the most part the dates aren't really that big of a deal they're just saying okay we've moved on we're at a different year now just in case you were wanting to know where we're at in the timeline of Neil Armstrong this is where we're kind of at and in this location glad that, luckily they don't 
like abuse this where they just like <laughs> throw as much information on the title cards as they need to. Usually it's yes. just the year and at times they'll put the location, but even then yeah. it's just like, this is where we're at. We're a different location, different time. Just as long as you know that, okay, we're moving on and then moves on. I'm, yeah, I'm definitely sure most audience members won't be as concerned about it as I was. Right. I'm a history minor without knowing it. I'm always like, okay, what date is it? What time is it? All right, I, I need to know. And then if I don't, then I'm semi-frustrated. Right. But most audience members won't care. That is just me being a nitpicky history <laughs> <Right>. minor. <laughs> but I, something I think we also should mention is the really well-done cinematography Yeah, throughout this movie. Yeah. And especially... In the opening scene, I'm not trying to get us back and talk about the opening scene for half an hour, but there is one shot at least that I did want us to mention, and it's when uh, Neil Armstrong is focusing on just his like his face and his helmet, and he's like coming up into the atmosphere, mm-hmm. and we just see that that blue atmosphere line just like come across his face, and I got chills. I was like, oh, oh dear. Yes, we are in we are we're in for a treat, and clearly. Uh, the cinematographer has worked on, his name is Linus Sandgren. He did, he was the cinematographer for La La Land. He also did American Hustle, Battle of the Sexes. He's also doing the new nut, Disney Nutcracker movie, quite different. Um, but I could see him getting an Oscar nomination I, for his work here. I definitely could too. And the fact that they were, they opted, okay, so they opted to do film for this. They filmed on celluloid. Especially now, they kind of upped the grain, it sounds like. Uh, at least from what I've read, they've upped the grain, uh, uh, yeah, which makes it look that. a bit more from the 60s, of course, uh, as, which is exactly what they were going for. This is very documentary style. A lot of handheld shots, very few steady shots. And when they are steady, they're usually showing some kind of landscape or they're showing, it's a v, or they're in space somewhere. For the most part, it's handheld documentary very close to the actors faces a lot of the time a very big emphasis on the eyes which i noticed once again in this opening when the uh when the curvature of the earth and the sun reflecting off it kind of reflects in his helmet which is very very interesting because the bridge of the nose lines up exactly with like the uh, with the separation of the two windows in the in the cockpit later on we'll have plenty more of these where when they get to the moon for the first time you get to see all three of their reactions and the reflection of the moon in their helmets focused on the eyes the eyes have a big emphasis on this movie. Uh, this is something I found to be very interesting because it, of course, goes to show a lot of different things in terms of uh, how we got here and all, whatever. But, yeah, the cinematography in this is great. And there was one shot that gave me chills there towards the end. It's when the rocket for the Apollo 11 is blasting off. And it's like this very wide shot. And when you say this yellow flash and then like this rocket flying up from wherever that came from. And it's just, it's there for our maybe a second, but it's so, so good. And that, and given the music and given the tone, it did a really good job at uh, creating a, an emotion. And then once we get onto the moon later, once again, the cinematography just kind of, it keeps getting better almost as the movie goes along. Yeah, very documentary style, which is very fitting, I feel. But at the same time, big emphasis on the eyes, all kinds of stuff. The, once again, even though, one, like I said, this movie is quite simple, it still takes its time to build things that make them a bit more complex than what they could have been. Yeah, this movie does look like the 60s. And oh, yeah. Not necessarily like a movie shot in the 60s, but like a Super 8 film mm-hmm. of the 60s almost, especially with how it is uh, handheld, kind of some quick zoom in, zoom outs, uh, close up. Uh, it's very different than any type of cinematography Chazelle has uh, worked with before. 
looks very different from La La Land. Oh, yeah. Whiplash. Yeah. This is more akin to Guy and Madeline, I would say. But even then, you can tell that there was an up in quality, obviously. Well, this looks different than any movie that I've seen about the 60s. There are tons of movies about the 50s and 60s, -hmm. but they don't look yeah, the clothes look right, the cars look right, but it doesn't like transport you into that time period and just give you that 60s feeling. This movie does that. Um, like one of the most recent movies I can think about the 60s was uh, Hidden Figures. Right. It just didn't look like it was, it just didn't give me that 60s feel. It looked like a movie shot in the 2010s about the 60s. Right. This didn't feel that way. Right. And I would have to say that it kind of comes down to. Maybe even just what they shot on. This was this one was shot on film. From right. what I can tell, Hidden Figures is shot on digital. I think this movie went for 32 millimeter for the most part. And then when it got to the moon, it was 70 millimeter for IMAX. Uh, but yeah, once again, the film grain really helped set in that this is an old film. This is or at least setting in time as a long time ago. At least about, I guess now it's getting close to, um, what, 60 years-ish almost? At least in 61, it's getting close to that. So yeah, does a really good job at making sure that you know we're in the '60s, and then there are times where it kind of engulfs you into this time, this time period, and there are times when we're in the moon where I'm just like, I feel like I'm on the moon because it's shot oh, yeah. in such a way where you're on the same eye level as Gosling is, mm-hmm. but you're looking like this one shot where you're looking up at the lunar module and you see the sun, you see the sun reflecting behind it. It makes you feel like you're on the moon, which is kind of spooky. It it is really spooky and. For me, there was never really a time that I felt like I was watching CGI or miniatures or I was like, oh, well, this is just a movie. I genuinely felt we are. Yeah, we're in space. They're they're really blasting off right now. They're really in this claustrophobic little cabin and or yes, they are really walking on the moon. There was never a time that I didn't feel like, oh, this is fake. This is. Star Wars, uh, clearly it's not real. Right. No, right. that that was that's a really high compliment I have to give to them because yeah. It just you're in those moments with them, you really feel like they're blasting off and not you don't think otherwise. Yeah. I think the moment when the movie really grabbed me was when they were getting on was when they were getting on to the Gemini 8 and they and then they blasted off with that and then the whole really this whole Gemini 8 sequence really grabbed me because he does a really great job, uh, Chazelle does, and then of course his audio engineers, really great job at sound engineering. At least, in, at least with this, just the sounds in general, because in this scene especially, it makes you feel as if you're getting on to the Gemini Eight yourself, because there's really no music playing until later into the the scene. And it's all just kind of sound effects and things are creaking and shaking back and forth when you're walking into the cockpit and guys are talking to you on left and right. It's actually kind of scary because they do such a great job and you're stepping into this thing that's going to take you outside of the earth. And it's pretty spooky just even thinking about that and then seeing this on the screen, you're walking toward it. Does a really, really, really good job. I can see this probably getting an Oscar for sound mixing and sound editing easily. Because it is just oh, that yeah. good. They do a really, really good job at making you feel both in terms of cinematography, because it is shot in a documentary style where it feel, kind of feels first person, but at the same time, that audio that also goes along with that to craft more realism. 
Yeah, and that's a good point to bring up the sound because the sound is a major element of it, especially how much everything is shaking and like, oh yeah, just compressing as it's going up into the atmosphere and bending and it's like, don't worry, it's not going to bust apart. It's made for this, but you just always have this feeling like it's going to break. Right. And that's just a part of the intensity and they're always flicking switches and I'm like, man, I'm glad they know what they're doing right right but yeah that sound is completely immersive almost as if it is one of those uh first person rides that you strap into and it moves around and shakes it's on hydraulics and things like that absolutely that that really does get you into it as well and oh boy is it is it intense when everything is shaking and the cabin is just like like about to to me, it sounds like it's about to break apart. Right, but it's not. right. And that's kind Ooh. of what they're going for, too. It's just like, is this going to stay together? Because it seems to be shaking around quite a bit. Yeah, they do. A re- this is something that I have to. I, I really hope this does get an Oscar for at least sound mixing and sound editing. Because they do a really good job with this. A really, really good job with this. Well, we also should talk about his family dynamics a little bit, too. Because it kind of goes back and forth between him being this almost reluctant captain kind of almost reluctant commander but at the same time he's not because he wants to do this he's willing to do it but he uh, he's driven he's motivated but he's not going to just just put himself at the front of the line right. he's always asked to do that and i think that does speak to his like humility to his leadership um but he does have an interesting family dynamic because uh, we know that his family, well, at least him and his wife, are accustomed to the death of friends, and then they experience death firsthand, and then it's really sad because um, his friends just keep dying, right. and it is scary for his family. And we notice how he goes from this warm, caring father, does lots of things with his kids. I love those scenes where he's playing with his kids and his kids say, you know, daddy, you want to play with me? Love those scenes. Uh, But then as the movie progresses and the stakes just keep getting higher where it's like, ultimately we are going to go to the moon. You've already been to the atmosphere. We're going way beyond that. You're going to walk on another planet. We just see him uh, kind of begin to just shut down emotionally and become a little more robotic and calculated I think he's trying to kind of like shield his family and spare his family saying, I might not be around much longer. We've already lost one child. That was really hard on us enough. I don't want to be that type of, uh, I don't want it to be that way with my uh, death as well. So that's, uh, that's kind of how his family dynamics increase. And his wife is played by, I would say, for the most part, newcomer Claire Foy. Right. I've seen her in a couple of things uh, pretty recently. But, yeah, she's getting up there in terms of popularity, I would say. Yeah, it's it's her year because, well, she's been in Netflix's The Queen, right. which I hear is pretty popular. She was in Steven Soderbergh's Unsane. Right. And I did get to see that. And that's, I think that's where I actually really heard about her was through this movie. Yeah, me too. And then I was like, oh, she's in this. And then she's also the new Lizbeth Salander in The Girl in the Spider's Web this next month or something. Right, right. So she's in like three theatrical movies this year and a TV series. Right. So yeah, she's she's <laughs> getting a lot of work now, which is great. <laughs> 
Well, and I think that this family dynamic too, once again, of course, it plays into the overall story and the big theme, of course. But I think what's really interesting is that this movie's take on death because, yeah, there are a lot of tragedies in this movie. We begin with the daughter dying and then later on one of his, both of, and later on towards the end of the movie, both of his really good friends die because, well, one of them was because he came in too quick or came in too uh, slow to land the to land his plane. But his other friend, Ed, burns up in this capsule, which is a big blow to him because he's going to go to the moon later on in the movie. And he has to face this fear multiple times about, is he going to go through with it? Is he actually going to overcome his fear of death? Once again, began with his daughter dying and then continuously begins to reinvigorate itself with more and more of his friends dying with, tra- every, with after every tragedy and going to every funeral. And it mostly comes down to, is he going to overcome death? Which is where the crater, big crater comes from in the end. And then he drops the, the uh, bracelet into the crater. But we'll get to that point. This is very, very interesting because, yeah, like you said, he's trying to, sh- more or less just trying to shield it from his from his family, from the blow from his family, which is very interesting to me. I mean, his wife makes him come back and talk to the kids, of course, which I think is a really good thing that she did. Uh, but he has to, which is interesting because he has to tell his kids I may not be coming back. And even more so, this actually did happen like in real life. They did write a letter uh, that the president would have read had the men not been able to get back into the capsule and then go back to go back to Earth. It's a very real possibility that these men, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong, were not going to return to Earth uh, once they got to the moon, they had no idea if they would be able to. And luckily they were able to, but they did actually write a letter that their president would read, which they do read in the film. It's the actual letter that he would read in the event that these two men were stuck on the moon, which I think is fascinating. And there's a really good scene that, well, two scenes that are juxtaposed together where right before the big mission, Apollo 11, uh, it's Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and... I want to say the third guy's name is like Michael Collins or something yes. close to that. That is right. They are being asked questions by reporters and Armstrong gives very robotic calculated answers. He's not having any fun. He's not jovial like Buzz Aldrin is. He's like, I would take more fuel and this is not a laughing matter. And they said, are you are you excited? And he's like, I'm pleased. He answers that twice that way. And so he's all, he's always Mr. Business. You know, and right. especially now that it's come to this point, because he says, I've already had lots of friends die. I could die. It's just, I'm just not having as much fun. I'm taking it a lot more seriously than you guys. But the unfortunate aspect is he treats his kids the same way. He's not even going to face them, uh, which is sad. But then his wife essentially forces them to sit down at the kitchen table and talk right. about it. But the way he answers his kids' questions is. Just, like his response and his tone, his demeanor is exactly how he treats the reporters. So it's really nice to juxtapose those scenes together showing he is just kind of become very shut off from the world. These situations have really changed him and uh, especially not until the mission is over. He is just going to be really removed and shut off and even from his own family. Right, right. And this kind of goes into this big theme of risk. Because in one point in the movie, like I mentioned in the summary, there is a big controversy that kind of stirs up with the general population where they're just like, should we even be spending money on something like this that we have that we know very, very little about? And they're calculating the risk and just like, is it even worth it? And at one point, 
they they well Ryan Gosling brings up this point when he crashes the like the lunar practice module and the guys are talking to him and he says we have to fail down here so we don't fail up there and the guy one of the guys is walking with him says well is it even worth even going up there if there is this big a risk and Gosling says it's too late for that which is very very interesting because the movie is very focused on we can't just not continue to further ourselves as like a human race more or less we can't just not continuously begin to explore different areas that we don't know anything about we can't just stagnate which is kind of what happens with ryan gosling's character he becomes kind of robotic he be, he shuts out he shuts out because of what he's experienced a lot of his friends becomes very very robotic and very direct but in the end he begins to kind of realize that we have to continue to move forward we can't stagnate that's a very very bad thing to not just not to just not change yeah, the movie does raise a really good question. Um, it's probably at the end of the second act, maybe towards the be- around the beginning of the third act, right. about, is this worth it? We're spending a lot of money. We've had a lot of people die just so we can go into outer space and walk on the moon. And it right. like it kind of trivializes walking on the moon as okay, there's people starving in the country. We get a funny quote from scene from Kurt Vonnegut, the sci-fi author, and he's like, I think we should just make New York livable first before <laughs> we focus on anything else. Right. That right. was pretty funny how they incorporated that there. But I was like, yeah, that that is a good question, and it's a valid question. Right, yeah, and they they this movie does a really good job at making sure that it considers all the risks that could happen potentially have they have they go to the moon, which of course they do, which is very, like once again, this is very, very interesting that they bring up this and NASA's there's like, we have, we, we have to one because we have to beat the Soviets. Otherwise they'll make it to the moon first. We can't let that happen uh, because we're America. But at the same time though, it's, once again, furthering exploration. Maybe we're not even supposed to go to the moon, but who cares? We're going to go there anyways. We're going to see what all is up there, which ends up just being a bunch of powder on a, on a giant rock. But even then, it's it's just so interesting that this movie brings up this this these two competing sides of, is it even worth it? We've already had a lot of people die just trying to prepare to go to the moon versus we have to, we hit the further exploration with the further, the knowledge of science and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right, and... Uh, in that scene, Armstrong is saying, if we quit now, then their deaths, my friend's deaths will be in vain. It will right. be meaningless and pointless if we stop now. And the movie ultimately concludes on a note. We get a nice clip from JFK because this movie uh, is during the time of JFK's assassination. We don't hear or see anything about it until the very right. end of the movie when they're like, oh, you know, JFK, I wanted us to go to the moon and we get a clip from him and he's saying you know we do it not because it's easy but because it's hard and because of that's that's just who we are as humans we are always striving for ingenuity to achieve greater heights um and even if it didn't really accomplish anything in the moment it did pave the way for future generations to discover you know all kinds of new things, um, all kinds of new methods of uh, science and aeronautics, even different medicines. It was uh, computers, things like that. So it, it did kind of have a domino effect in that way. It also was important because it, it sent the message that we're not going to let the Soviet Union um, keep progressing and beat us right. uh, with this uh, 
because this was during the Cold War and the Cold War would only escalate. And uh, one of the things that I thought of was one of the things that helped Reagan defeat the Soviet Union was what the media dubbed uh, his Star Wars plan. He basically fooled the Soviet Union into saying that we built these like Death Star-esque satellites in space that would we could just blow them off the face of the Earth with one drop of a button. And I, I'm sure the space race was still in their minds and that helped them realize, okay, yeah, they, they may have this technology. So lots of unintended consequences, but I think the movie does a good job at landing on the conclusion that yes, this was necessary, uh, you know, capitalism, free market thinking ideas, freedom, uh, overcame the, the free spirit of man overcame the, the Soviets and it just boosted morale in the whole country. Right, right. And even then, we can take this idea and push it inwardly to maybe even the director himself, which is very interesting. I mentioned numerous times this opening, this is something that he's not used to doing. He's not, he's the last, the only movies that he's made, full-length movies, are those about music. Both, all, all three of them, Guy, Madeline, Whiplash, and La La, La La Land, were all based around music, especially jazz. This one is not so. He's axed the music part. He, well, he's the focus around it. He has more or less moved in toward this. He's, okay, he's taken his ideas of keeping film very realistic and really put those to use. Like, re, like he's really focusing on realism, especially in this one. I think this is one of his more realistic movies that he's ever made. Uh, and he, and it kind of goes into what he has been wanting to do with since the beginning, or I guess what he's doing with this movie, he's pushing himself beyond what, what he's been thought that he could do. He's pushing himself, how can I stagnate and just, you know, com- continue making movies about music when I can make something even greater or even try to make something better or different at the very least than what I've done before. You know, what if I explored different avenues past just music uh, and things like that, which is kind of like Whiplash, but at the same time, it more or less is moving not so much towards music instead it's moving towards what are my skills what am i capable of doing what what are the risks involved in making something like this things of that nature it kind of also is a more a personal story it sounds like from chazelle himself yeah and uh chazelle does seem to pick projects that depict the the creativity of the human spirit and even the ingenuity of it and uh, right. I would say they're almost like two sides of the same coin. They're very different because the other ones were about kind of this like free expression of of music and the just the joy of uh, music. And you know, clearly it's about more than that. But mm-hmm. this was about how the freedom of the individual to literally achieve new heights and progress uh, think. So I really like that aspect of it. And I like that Chazelle is doing these projects to champion this human creativity and ingenuity. Yeah, that's something I, yeah, once again, I also really, really like is that he's challenging himself. He's not just creating a movie and saying, well, that was fun, and then making the next one. (laughs) He's taking what he's learned and what he's explored when making these movies and applying it to his own life, which is, once again, what a great filmmaker should always do, or just in a storyteller or anything like that. They should always take the lessons that they preach and apply them to their own lives, which is, sounds like to me what he's doing. I mean, I don't, I'm not, I'm not friends with him personally, but from what I'm seeing on the screen, that seems to be the case. Now, maybe not to tip, maybe to tip my hand a little bit here. This may not be the greatest movie he's ever made, 
but it's still very, very, very competent compared to what he could have made or what could have what or what this could have been. Clearly, this is still very personal to him, and I think that he only makes movies that are that he that he finds to be personal or something that he can inject his own personal view into. He even stated in he even stated in an interview that when he saw this script press past his desk, he was very very interested in it from the beginning because perhaps it just has to do with gaining new heights when it comes to uh, showing your skills and things like that. And I'm sure that's what his what was going through his mind, and that's what came out in the script and what came out in the movie. It's very very interesting to me that he is really willing to try so many different things because he has now. Of course, Whiplash and La La Land are still both about music, but they are vastly different movies when you really look at it. Because Whiplash is a psychological thriller, whereas uh, La La Land is a romance comedy-ish kind of a movie. They're, they're still somewhat similar, but they are quite different when you really look at them and really watch them. Same with this one. This one is probably the most different of all the movies that he's made, though. I will say it's also nice to see a movie celebrating one of... America's greatest achievements, right. especially at a time in the country where it just seems like morale is low on a lot of issues and a lot of revisionist history going on about how terrible we are. We've never done anything really good. And it's like, hey, you know, yes, we have. So right. this movie does. I'm glad to see a movie where it easily could have probably gone the other way. And somehow they could have spun it and made us look bad right. throughout this whole thing or like, you know, oh, look, it, it was actually a bad thing. But that's really not this what this movie is about. It's mainly just about it's just telling an objective story about this is what really happened. And this is a great achievement, not just in American history, but in human history as well. Right. And even the individual himself, because this right. is once again a movie that focuses on just really just the character of Neil Armstrong itself. Mm -hmm. Yes, the moment is there and it has to be there obviously and it needs to be there for this movie to work but at the same time when you really look at this movie the big push that he's going for is following neil armstrong's character himself not necessarily the achievement that we made although that is definitely part of it that's kind of where we get into some controversy of the movie itself because when we get to this moon landing scene there is not a sequence or a shot where they plant the flag uh, we do see it. It is in kind of like a wide shot of Buzz and uh, Neil Armstrong just kind of on the moon. Uh, but we don't actively see them plant it. And that has stirred quite the controversy uh, for this movie when it was found out that this wasn't a thing that they were not going to show them planting the flag, uh, which I think is very interesting. Now, Chazelle has come out and said that it's not his intention to more or less pull the Americanization out of what happened. The idea was that it's a per it's a man's personal story, and that's not part of the story, but it is still important, which is why he still has that shot, the white shot of the flag being there. That being said, uh, the idea was not to do the same thing as the NFL, where they kneel during the national anthem. That's not it. That's not it at all. The idea is to just follow Neil Armstrong's personal life, not necessarily the fine details of the actual event itself. Yeah, I didn't even know anything about this until the other night. Someone told my dad, and then my dad told me, they're like, oh, they purposefully omitted planting the flag because of this uh one world quasi anti-american agenda right and i was like really and 
it's like, well, nobody's like really seen the movie yet. Right. Uh, unless for like critics who, you know, pre-screened it and whatnot. But it was funny because he was telling me that. And then all of a sudden, okay, listeners, I guess I actually lied at the beginning of this podcast. I saw a TV spot for the movie the day before I saw it. Okay. All right. I did see a tiny bit of footage. I forgot about that. <laughs> but in, anyways, in the trailer, we get a shot of his son raising the American flag. And then we get a shot of the flag on the moon in the TV spot, anyways, right. from what I saw. So I was like, and my dad just finished telling me that. And I was like, I just saw the flag twice in the trailer on TV, so I'm pretty sure they're not trying to hide it. And I was like, I don't know about this. I'm I'm going to remain open-minded. I'm not going to believe anything until I see the movie. And yeah, in the end, we don't see them plant the flag, but we see the flag in two wide shots. Right. Plus... The flag is on their spaceship. We see the sun raising the flag. We see a ton of flags in his gift basket. We see the American flag everywhere all the time. So I don't know. People are getting their – it's just ridiculous. The controversy is ridiculous. It's more poignant and it's more personal because we are following the personal uh, character arc, the personal journey of Neil Armstrong. So it's more purposeful because we can't really have it both ways. Uh at the time, especially because the movie is pushing, it's getting close to two hours and 20 minutes anyway. Regardless, you get to see the flag. So now if we never saw the flag, that would be kind of odd. Yeah, that would be cause for concern, I would say. If there was no flag anywhere. Right. It's more It's more poignant. It's more powerful that we see him take his daughter's bracelet, which I had a feeling when they said, are you going to bring anything up there, Neil? And he said, well, I would bring more fuel. I thought, you know what, I bet on the inside he's thinking, I'm going to bring his daughter's bracelet because in a way he's like doing this for her. Right. He's saying, look at what your dad has achieved. You know, I'm I'm sorry I couldn't, uh, I couldn't raise you, I couldn't save you, but he has those flashbacks throughout the movie and he kind of remembers her like pointing up at the sky. Really beautiful scene where he leaves that on the moon. And it's important that we don't draw focus away from that. Right. I would say, because that is the story that we've been following. It's his journey. And so, no, I had no issues with it at all that we didn't get a shot of them planting the flag. <laughs> right. That's just not what the movie was really about. Right. And uh, see, I had no idea this was a thing until after I left the movie. And it was actually yesterday before recording this that I found out that this was even a thing. Ugh. And you're right. The people who are claiming that this is an anti-American movie have not seen the movie because A, it hasn't been released yet, uh, but B, they're just saying that, oh, we're going to boycott. There's a hashtag on Twitter that's been going around called hashtag what? boycott first man. Yes, I read oh some of the tweets gosh. for this. There are people who haven't even seen it from what I can tell. Uh, in even some, even the okay, even the Armstrong family had said that it really doesn't matter all that much. They said that they didn't think that the movie was anti-American, and they even <laughs> recommended going to see the movie. <laughs> so I, I don't know. It's it's very interesting because there was one article that I found that was way just like out of nowhere, where they mm. said that the movie should have been about this. They, it should have been about the politics at the time. It should have been about us and our uh, and the American way of our achievement and making it to the movie. This is what the movie should have been about. And I'm just thinking the whole time where I'm reading this, uh, no, that not necessarily. I'm sure we can still make a movie that about that, but that's not what this movie is. And it's interesting that we have this, at least some people would tend to have this uh, pre 
thoughts about what the movie should be because it's about space and about how we made the moon first rather than what the movie maybe is better at doing, which is, in this case, telling the personal life of Buzz Aldrin, not Buzz Aldrin, but telling the personal <laughs> life of Neil Armstrong. Buzz Aldrin also did tweet about the, something about hashtag proud of being American and had two pictures of them on the moon. Although, it, it, whether or not that's tweeted towards the movie is not proven necessarily, but it is a coincidence that it came out about the time this all came out. Anyways, uh, it's kind of silly controversy. I guess I can understand where it stems from because trailers two and three are very heavy on the political views or political issues of the movie, but the movie itself is not very heavy on politics just in general. Um, so I guess no, I can see that's where it kind of stems from, but at the same time, I don't think it's necessarily, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of, merited. Uh, that's just kind of my own thoughts. I think it is pretty silly. Yeah, this is... Uh, I'm trying to think of the right word. The only word that's coming to me right now is... I'll, and I'll explain why I use this word. This is conservatism at its worst. I'm not talking political conservatism. Uh, it's mostly just when th uh, things are judged unfairly or there's a double standard right. or they're just... Uh, it's just very narrow-minded, I guess you could say. Um, for instance families had no problem with the wizards which is in lord of the rings but then with harry potter uh it's a no-go it is evil right there it was just this really arbitrary rule uh, chronicles of narnia deals with magic it's positively portrayed and negatively portrayed it's just one of those standards where it's just like, oh my gosh, because it has magic in it, I'm not going to go see it because magic is evil. Right. And then they pop on a movie about magic. And this is like, oh my gosh, because it doesn't have a shot of the, them planting the flag, I'm not going to go see it. Uh, clearly, it's anti-American, even though we get 20 other flag shots in this movie. Right. I, I think it, I'd be hard-pressed to say that this movie is anti-American. It's It's not... It's absolutely not. Yeah, and if anything, that's kind of the point we're trying, I guess, I mean, we both have kind of stated multiple times. It's not about the event necessarily. The, the focus of the movie is not on the event itself, although that is a part of it, and it needs to be a part of it once again. The big focus is towards Neil Armstrong's growth as a person and how this event grows himself and, of course, teaches the audience a lesson as well. It's that what is the focus It's not necessarily that oh look at what the americans achieved although right. once again that is a part of it that is not the focus however well it's about how the impact has affected his family life right. his life over this decade and the personal connection he holds to how him walking on the moon what does that mean for him and it has to be that way because movies are narratives right if you're looking for something not personal really then just watch a documentary and you can get the depiction of the event, everything leading up to it, and you really won't get that personal touch. In order for us to have a narrative, we really do need a protagonist. We need to see his journey and how this main event connects to it. Right. And Chazelle's biggest focus was to look at, okay, what is not shown in these kinds of movies? Because you have a movie like Apollo 13, which is relatively similar in terms of maybe uh, what the end goal is. They were trying to, both movies are trying to get to the moon, but Apollo 13 focuses on the event itself 
And although the characters are there, the emphasis is not so much on them. This is the opposite, where the character of Neil Armstrong is the absolute focus of this movie. And everything points to him growing as a character, not necessarily the event and everything that points to how we got there. Once again, that is part of it. And once again, Paul 13, the characters may not be as deep or as complex as Neil Armstrong in that one, but they are still very important. They must be there for that. Uh, they all both are very from two different directors. One's by Robert Zemeckis, and one's by a very new director, uh, Damien Chazelle, and they both have different views. Once again, it's, it's interesting because uh, this movies okay. Movies are very introspective. The, what you learn in the movie, what you bring into the movie, is what you're going to get out of the movie. And once again, if you have a very personal story like this, you're going to get a lot more out of it than what if you were to tell the actual event, what that one happened, and focus little on the characters, which is what a lot of movies do. And I enjoy that Damien Chazelle takes this idea and goes, okay, well, what isn't shown? And then does that. This is kind of like our, uh, kind of like a Reservoir Dogs of space movies. That's that's an interesting connection. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that I is what Reservoir Dogs that. is. It's it doesn't ever show you know the, uh, the actual heist. Like, it's everything around the heist. Yeah, you're you're kind of drawing the connection between the personal stories. Yes, yes. Not the fact that they are the same because they are not. They are vastly different movies. Don't get that <laughs> <Right>. confused. <laughs> okay, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> no, no. Okay, I'm just saying in terms um, of story structure. Yeah. Um, one other tidbit that I appreciated and most may not appreciate it and Chazelle didn't even have to put it in there, but I still thought it was interesting that he did is towards the very end. This movie doesn't bring up um, like God very much or, or our creator. We don't really know the religious views of those people right? and maybe they weren't. And so don't put something in there that's not true to real life because I, I do want a true story. But nevertheless, I did think it was kind of cool how we did get a small uh, shot of the moon and Earth. Uh, this is after they landed and they're looking at all of their magazines and stuff. And it says, like, in the beginning, God, and then, like, dot, dot, dot. Right. And I was like, oh, well, that's that's a nice nod to um, there is a creator out there. There is more to it. Like I said, Chazelle didn't have to put that in there. But nevertheless, he did, and that kind of draws our attention to... There is, this isn't all just like some random little event or little creation. There is uh, something grand and bigger to it. So, right. nice touch. And then a little bit later, not long after, after that shot, we see uh, Claire Foy, Claire Foy, Claire Foy's character walking out. And one reporter asks her, uh, where are your prayers? And so she goes, oh, yes, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. Now, I thought going into this movie, this is the one, this is the, uh, this was the mission where the person who was in charge who in charge read Genesis, or I think the first half of Genesis 1. Uh, no, that was Apollo 8. I walked out and was like, wait, didn't they, what, didn't Neil Armstrong read the Bible? That was Apollo 8, not Apollo 11. That was my fault. <laughs> when I walked out, I was like, uh, then I looked it up. Huh. I didn't know about that at all. Was Apollo 8 the one where they uh, blew up? No, uh, the one that they blew up, that was a test. Uh, when they oh. when like the cabin exploded and where they that was that was actually a test uh, for I think it was actually for them going to the moon for all Ooh. I remember um, but yeah this was I think they I can't remember exactly what the mission was about they they perhaps they orbited the moon I believe that is also part of it they definitely did some orbiting they didn't land anywhere uh, but they at one point did look, get to look out the window and see the Earth as like as much as you can so they, they, like the small little blue disc. And then the captain or whoever is whoever's the lead read Genesis one from there. Mm. And that's where, and they actually, I found out that 
Nassau kind of got a little bit of controversy because of that. Um, <laughs> but e- either way, I got those confused for a moment or two, but I looked it up after the movie and it's not so. So, yeah. One of the things that I was pleasantly surprised about with this movie is how little language there was, which is surprising because Chazelle created a language filled whiplash, just extreme, heavy, sometimes vulgar language with whiplash, and then relatively uh, very little language in La La Land, and he brought that here once again. I, they said Jesus's name in vain once, and uh, one F word, and maybe the D word, and uh, really not much at all. That really stood out to me, because this easily could have had a lot more language, because in today's uh, cinematic culture, just cram as many F-words in there as you possibly can. As much language as you can. I understand that that probably is necessary sometimes for writing purposes, but it's not always. So it is nice to see he's said, you know, I don't really need to put it in there. So that was very surprising to me. Yeah, and for whatever reason, I was ahead in my head that this is rated R before before I went to go see it. And of course, I did the IMDb look up and then hit PG-13. But uh, I was thinking that there would be a bit more language in this, considering his last two movies that he's made. And yeah, there's like very, very little. I think the worst that thing you mentioned is this, they use the F word. And that's, of course, they use it the one time that they can in the, in the PG-13, unless you're lucky and you get away with two, like Dunkirk <laughs> or Man on the Ledge. But that's a different story. Uh, yeah, very interesting that uh, this was an idea that he chose just for whatever reason, one reason or another, just little language in it. Perhaps that is just due to a different scriptwriter. I have no idea. So before we finish up, I do want to get your thoughts on the score because it's really not front and center as it has been uh, right. in the past, especially with La La Land, with that incredible score that uh, got a few Oscar wins and as whatnot. many as it possibly could. <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, it was pretty amazing. Extremely well done score. Right. I didn't even really hear or think about a score until, like I said, over halfway through when all of a sudden I'm like, oh, wow, there's a score. And yeah, it's very well done. There was I. Th- it might have been the docking scene that I was thinking of 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, where you're in space and it's kind of fanciful and kind of light and but very orchestral. Right. Um, I, so I want to hear your thoughts on the score for this movie. Yeah, I think that this, I think this is Justin Hurwitz. I think I'm, I briefly mentioned this earlier, but this is, in my opinion, Justin Hurwitz's weakest score. But that's not to say that it's bad. I still think it's a good score for the most part. I think that there are moments where it gets kind of repetitive. Uh, one such as when I think it's when they're docking, or. I think it would be when they're docking because... No, no, no. It's at the very end when he's trying to fly over this crater. Um, that's when the score kind of gets a bit repetitive uh, in terms of the main theme of that one section of music. However, it did really get me when they when it has like this wide shot of the moon. I think for one of the first times ever of the movie, of just like the landscape of the moon. And this score just blasts. And that, that I thought was very, very effective with how the score is implemented. Uh, for the most part, and I actually did listen to the score outside of the movie. I listened to it at work yesterday, and it is still a pretty good score. It's got some really good tracks in it. There is one or two where there's like 
there's one there's one specifically where there's like this harp that's playing at first and then the orchestra slowly begins to also come in and join that harp at one or a couple moments i think that may have actually been when the docking scene when this all happened yeah, there are some really good tracks in here there are some tracks that are pretty they're good they're they're easily above average and i'm glad that justin Hurwitz is himself is also stretching out his arms to see what else can he do that's not jazz which once again, we talked about how this score was made. Very, very interesting. So yeah, overall, good score. I mean, not spectacular like Whiplash or La La Land or even uh, Guy and Madeline, I would say. Definitely his weakest score, but at the same time, definitely not a bad score. It's, I, I would say it's definitely re- a definitely good score. Definitely a well-composed score. I, I thought it was well-composed as well, especially in the moments that, we, that I actually noticed it, I right. guess. This score isn't memorable for me i can't even replay any of it in my head it served its purpose for the scenes in the movie and i thought it paired well nicely with the visuals on screen but definitely not going to i don't think it's going to get any oscar nominations yeah i don't think it will either personally and it wasn't as memorable as uh like hans zimmer's score in interstellar right but, like, Hans Zimmer's Interstellar score wouldn't work in First Man. Oh, no. no. Absolutely not. The tones are very vastly different between the two of them. It is interesting, though, because Chazelle did pull from some... Uh, he did pull from some Interstellar bits from Christopher Nolan. I did read that. That is interesting. Yeah, I know the score was so impactful for Interstellar um, in one particular scene, like where Matthew McConaughey is trying to... Probably another docking scene. It's always the docking scenes. Always the docking scenes. Um, but I know the score was like, and the the scene was so intense. The score was so powerful. Like people were crying. It made people cry in the theater. It was like such an emotional thing. Um, so just very different space scores. Like I said, this one is more akin to 2001, I would say. Yeah. yeah. And, and there are and, definitely some 2001 elements or homages in this movie. Definitely. Yeah. And... Uh, especially visually, I yes. would say, uh, especially helmet shots, how the colors reflect off of helmets. Right. It's kind of impossible now after 2001 not to do a shot like that and people oh, yeah. to be like, yeah. this is from Kubrick's 2001. Um, not to say they're like exactly the same or they're really trying to do that, but clearly yeah. you can tell it gives you that feeling there. It's where the DP is most likely drawing inspiration from. But is there is there anything else you wanted to mention? Well, I do want to talk about the ending, the landing on the moon real quick, and then the very last scene when they're in quarantine. Uh, because I find these, these I think are probably the best parts of the movie, these last couple of scenes. Because, of course, everything's been building up to these two moments, especially the first moon landing one. Because we do see him fly over this crater with little fuel left. And he has the option, and it shows us multiple times, that he has the option to abort anytime he feels that he needs to. And he, and right. he looks at that button and there are a couple of reaction shots that we get where he's like, he almost really wants to push it. Uh, and uh, maybe he does. Maybe he almost does push it, but he never does. He flies over this crater and with the last bits of fuel left lands on the other side, which is so interesting to me. Uh, once again, he, I mean, why didn't he just fly forward? He, I mean, I guess he was already going that way, but... Anyways, this goes again to serve this uh, more visually that he's overcome this fear of death and risk and all the things that are involved. He just has to do it. He's so close now. He could give up, but he's so close. He he himself needs to finish it out, and he does. He, he lands the module on the other side of this crater and gets out, and he 
shows that he is not only got overcome death, but he's also accepted the fact that his daughter is dead by dropping her bracelet into another crater, maybe even the one that he overcame earlier. Very, very interesting in terms of visuals. It is a very powerful visual. Yeah. How they've come this close and they're that close to failure as well. Uh, extremely intense, but it, it does go to show you Armstrong's determination. How no matter how tough it's going to get, no matter how close it's going to come down to it, he's not going to give up. He knows he can do it. And he has confidence in himself, which I think is an admirable character trait that is uh, worth looking up to, you know, worth honoring is uh, how he's like, I'm I'm going to accomplish this. I'm not going to fail. Um, this is similar to when they get into that spin and they can't get out of the spin and they are just going to pass out just by the laws of physics and nature. Right. But right before he does, he is still able to overcome those odds. So he's a very admirable character. He's a very honorable character, how he is this leader who is not going to give up in the face of hardship, especially when they've come that close. And that makes the payoff all the more satisfying, and especially because they tie it back with the emotional connection to his daughter right. that we saw all the way back at the beginning and we get flashes of throughout the movie and how we get this scene of tranquility after this white-knuckled scene of them going over this crater about yeah. to lose And it's people. so quiet. This It goes oh, on for yeah. about five minutes. There's like hardly anything except for just visuals in terms of, I guess, the way it's a sound and music. There's like literally nothing. It's just all very tranquil, very, uh, very serene. Well, and I know my dad audibly said, wow, when they open up the hatch and all this like, you know, hissing and air gushing, and then they just walk out and... Just complete silence. Yes. Yeah. Out in space. Absolutely. This is this is probably my favorite scene in the whole movie. Because it is just so quiet. It and not only that, but it also makes you reflect on what the rest of the movie was already about and how we got to this moment. Uh and things like that. It does a really, really good job at visually telling you that we finally made it and that there's just kind of this quietness to the scene to just kind of let you rest because it is quite a, it's quite intense getting to this moment and, and once again once we got there we finally did it we finally were able to get to where we were dreaming of going which is we finally got to the moon and now we're here and it gets to show you everything that there is and you they get this great shot of this great 360 shot of the camera turning all the way around and back to gosling again uh and his and his view of this of this moon and the reflection of that moon in his helmet very interesting. Very well done, I would say. Yeah, and then, of course, when he drops his daughter, he looks at it and remembers. And he, he brings his visor up so he can see his face. Yeah. Drops it. Very emotional scene and an extremely well done payoff. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, we don't cut back to uh, his wife or family at all during this whole scene. Yeah, for the for the most part, whenever he's in space, we kind of get small bits and pieces. I don't think this is one where we ever go cut back to the family, but we do kind of get that contrast of you know him struggling up in space and then his family struggling back down home with small details, and the contrast of him struggling up in space with more or less the survival or the the exploration of humanity. Uh, but yeah, I don't think in this scene we ever really get that, anything like that. Yeah, and the movie is mostly always told from his perspective. There are a few times that don't involve him. 
there's they're not very many and they're not very long right but it's mostly told from his perspective so and we do the first time we see his daughter he's with her that's right, right after the opening scene of him in space and he's with his daughter and then the final scene is he's in space and he's kind of reminiscing about his daughter right once again now i do want to talk about this very last scene when the wife comes in because yeah. this is very very simple they're put in quarantine for a while. This did happen. They were put in quarantine because they didn't know if they were going to bring anything back from the moon. They didn't. Um, they found out. <laughs> but they just didn't know because it was their first time. They were just like, they didn't want to take any precautions right. and infect the entire yeah, Earth the with a disease that is yeah. from space or whatever. <laughs> the moon but disease. yeah, so they put him in quarantine for, I think, a month, they said. But that one moment, the wife comes in to visit him. And it's very, very interesting because, once again, it's kind of like how we were on the moon. It's very quiet. There's a little bit of music here, though. But they walk over to this window. They just kind of look at each other. And then they go to touch hands. And there's this glass separating them. And the movie ends. And it's very interesting because it's the the emotions that you get from these two characters are very complex. Because she's she's relieved that he's back home. But at the same time, he can't come back and be the same person he ever was again. And I don't think he ever will be there, the same person. But it, this scene is very, very well done. I think it's very, very powerful. Maybe not as powerful as the one before it, but still brings in this very human element to the story in terms of relationships, especially with a wife, where they just kind of look at each other and they go to touch hands. And then that's it. And the movie just ends. And they really left on shaky terms just really uneasy how the dynamics were left he barely right. wanted to talk with his kids he gave his son a handshake for pete's sake and we don't really see much of the husband and wife aside from her throwing his briefcase and yelling at him right uh, we don't see a lot of emotional kissing and hugging or anything between the two of them so when he does come back and um i really liked that we didn't see the re-entry he was just back because that would have taken the focus off and the impact off of the previous scene of him being on the moon. Right. right. Uh, smart choice not to show the reentry. He's just back. And she is clearly excited to see him. She's like, yes, my prayers have been answered. I'm, you know, I could tell she's excited to go see her husband. I mean, who wouldn't be? And yeah, they kind of, they're not really, they give like a little smile, but then it's pretty awkward. Mm -hmm. But then I do like uh, the resolution between the two their kind of uh, reconciliation of and that that just speaks to their demeanor they've been through so much right so right. like personal death the death of a daughter the the death of close friends multiple moving like they had to move a lot their lives have just been upended multiple times it's been a hard life um i mean they have had a lot of joy in it as well because we get some really fun scenes of like the kid going like he sends his kid to time out and She's like, I'm not, I'm not laughing. Your, your mom is crying, actually. She's not laughing. Right, right. Uh, that was a good scene. So we do see they do have a lot of joy in it as well, but it does show that things are different, but they will be better than what they have been. At least that's how I took it. Right. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. The, oh, I guess I forgot to bring this up in the background info, but the final moon scene was shot in a local rock quarry at night. Wow. So that's interesting. <laughs> I found that cool. out when I was doing research. I was like, oh, interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah, it it didn't look like a set to me. Right. Now, I'm sure that the landscape shots were probably had some CGI trickery to them. 
oh, yeah. to make it look like they were on the moon. But like at least with like there's at least one shot where it's faced towards the floor, towards the ground, and he is walking. You do see some of the rocks. I'm pretty sure that would have been that would have been raw from the rock query. But landscape mm-hmm. shots probably could have been CGI'd. Maybe they weren't. I had no idea. But that is where it was shot in the local walk query, uh, not so far from the set that they shot this. Uh, yeah, so there you go. It was at night. I do appreciate Chazelle using practical effects right. as often as he can because I know I understand CGI is getting to the point where it less and less takes you out of the movie, but nevertheless, it still does because you're like, there's no way this could be real. But right. this, I never felt that way during this movie. I have no doubt that they probably used miniatures for some of these uh, wide shots of like the spaceship and whatnot. Oh, and yeah. They're able to accomplish miniatures so much better than in the past that it it really does look real how they're they're able to do that. Right. Yeah. This uh, this definitely looks like they use some miniatures. I don't know if they did or not. I have no uh, information if they use CGI or miniatures. It looks like they use miniatures. It does look that real uh, compared to if they were to use CGI. Mm-hmm. Maybe they did use CGI. I don't know. This had a fifty nine to seventy million dollar budget, so they could have gotten away with with using CGI, but I don't know if they did. It doesn't look like they did, which is a good thing, I guess, if they did. Yeah. Uh, the, I guess the only time I could think of CGI is when he's looking in his little rearview mirror in the cockpit and we see um, the other part of the spaceship blast off. Um, right. Clearly, that's not real, um, but it's not enough to be like to take you out of it. That was the oh, only yeah. time where it's like clearly they would have to CGI that into the mirror. Right. <laughs> most likely. Right. So are we ready to give the listeners our rating and recommendation? Yeah, I think so. Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for First Man? I'm glad that Damien Chazelle did this movie. Once again, I don't think it's his best. Not his worst. Definitely not his worst. Is it, if, if you've been following it, for me, it's bottom of the barrel. The bottom of his is Guy and Madeline, which I still gave a positive score to. Um, and then Whiplash, and then La La Land. Definitely not his best in turn when it comes to First Man, but definitely not his worst. Uh, that's an interesting thing to say because it's always been about music. It's always been about following your dreams. And although this does have that dream aspect in, in pursuing those, the heavier emphasis is more on the character and having the character learn something or overcoming risk and death and all kinds of stuff like that and pushing yourself kind of like with whiplash past what you think that you can do past what you we do it once again that speech from jfk comes back to my mind where it's just like we don't do it because it's easy we do because it's hard and because it's kind of necessary for us to just explore and find out what even is this it follows us every day and it's always orbiting our earth but what even is it we do have no idea and so this is very interesting to me that chazelle takes this idea and pushes himself beyond what he's comfortable with, which is music, which is, we know for a fact he's been, that he's grown up with music, specifically jazz. But now with this movie, there's really no jazz in it at all, anywhere. It's just a character study, a long epic of a character study. But even then, he does a surprisingly good job for this, for a movie that he's not done before, really. Very interesting to me. Now, of course, there are issues with pacing. There are issues uh, with tone where it just kind of shifts every once in a while, I guess. There are a couple moments, I guess, where it really shifts that I noticed that I wasn't a big fan of. 
the pacing, although it is very quick, there are times where I think it, it goes maybe a bit too fast for things to be relayed. Um, the score isn't all as great as it used to be with Justin Hurwitz uh, in his composition, but that's not to say it's bad. That's the kind of thing with this movie. It's not, it's not, everything's not fantastic, but everything's not bad in any sense of the word. And that just kind of goes for the I guess the whole movie in general. I now I did leave with a lot to think about, but not a lot that I feel is very personally impacting towards me. That being said, I still would give it a recommend, a pretty solid recommend. But when it comes to a score, I'm probably gonna give it a seven out of ten. I still would probably get this on Blu-ray because I am a big a big fan of Chazelle, and B, this is a fantastic looking movie just in general, and the ideas and everything that it does and it does a really good job at. He's building up this character of Neil Armstrong. At the same time, though, it does have some shortcomings that are there. And I know that Chazelle will be able to do much better next time. I do give him some grace. There, this is a first movie that he is not used to doing. But at the same time, there is definitely room for improvement here. Obviously, I think with every film he's ever done, still has room for improvement. Even La La Land, which I gave an 11 out of 10. Still a great movie. Overall, I give it a 7 out of 10. Pretty solid recommend. First Man is an epic drama about one man's personal journey to space, but it's much more than that. It's about his journey in life, dealing with loss, dealing with love, dealing with how his personal mission, like his, uh, just his goal in life, like his God-given ability to be able to lead and do this, it really couldn't come down to anybody else. How that impacts his family and how it impacts the country and even the rest of the world, how this was a monumental achievement in the history of man. And I found it to be a very powerful drama about his journey. I didn't know what to expect coming into this movie. I didn't know what to expect at all, but I left very pleased and very satisfied with this film. Damien Chazelle, once again, doesn't disappoint. This has great storytelling, great cinematography, sound design, uh, set design, costume design. I can easily see it getting um, the Oscar for uh, set design, maybe even costume design, just different things like that. And uh, some, I, I can definitely see it getting some other Oscars as well, maybe even best adapted screenplay. Um, so very well done in all of those aspects. I was extremely impressed how he was able to build tension, but also give us these intimate moments of family life. And then also understand how is this going to impact the country? How is this going to impact the world by never transplanting us to Moscow, never transplanting us to the desk of the president. We always hear these things in the background and through, Ryan Gosling's character and through those around him, we can see what this not just only means to them, but they know what is writing on this as well. And it's a fascinating uh, biopic and historical drama exploration of this period in history that I don't think many think about. Uh, definitely not in today's age, probably, but I'm really glad we got to see this story be told in such a great cinematic fashion. Uh, Chazelle just does movies that makes us love cinema once again because we're sorely lacking in that department today. Most movies are just about making money and uh, just kind of duping us into thinking we like what we're seeing on screen, but comparatively, it's mostly bad, honestly. But uh, Chazelle gives me hope for the future of cinema for young directors as well. He's a very young director and 
he loves to shoot on film. He loves storytelling just to tell a great story. Oh, it gives me hope. It, it makes me so glad. But as for the issues, I think the runtime is slightly too long. There are scenes that we could have pared down just a bit in order for us to uh, get there because I was feeling it, especially probably towards the third act. Now, this wasn't that big of a deal. It wasn't that big of a thing where it's like, oh my gosh, you know, I when is this going to be over? But I will say in the end, you do feel the runtime because this is a very long movie getting close to two and a half hours. But nevertheless, he still is able to tell the story fairly well. Uh, that was probably really my only uh, big issue. I think Ryan Gosling in general is just a very placid person. Not a lot of emotion, not a lot of expression in most of his movies. I just can't see him getting too expressive. Uh, but Regardless, he still does a great job uh, in his role. Uh, he does get very expressive there towards the beginning, and it is important to notice that he gets less expressive, more placid, and uh, hard because of everything he's going through and building towards. But then we do return to that emotion that uh, Chazelle leaves it up to us. How are we going to respond to his putting his daughter's bracelet on the moon? Yeah, we do see his face for a little bit, but it's mostly... How is this impacting us? How do we feel? So that's nice that the movie's not really telling us how to feel. It's just giving us this little moment and letting us make of it what we will ourselves. So I was extremely impressed with with First Man, and I'm going to give it 9 stars out of 10 with a strong recommend. But uh, let's give the listeners our ranking of Chazelle films. Okay. So we want to go from worst to best. We could, or we could go best to worst. Okay. I want to go worst to best. Okay. <laughs> I kind of already mentioned my my list earlier in my, in my final thoughts. Fourth is Guy and Madeline. Third is First Man. Second is Whiplash. First is La La Land. Okay. Uh, I'll go, I will go worst to best as well. So my least favorite Chazelle film uh, at the bottom, number four, is Guy and Madeline on a park bench. He has come so far. To be then. fair, that is a student film. But yes, you're very <laughs> correct. <laughs> yes. Um, I would probably say third is Whiplash. Second is First Man. And then my number one pick, obviously, is La La Land. I mean, I guess it makes sense. We both gave it an 11 out of 10. So, And it's hard because La La Land and First Man are so different. They're nowhere near the same genre. Right. Yeah, uh, they're both they're both vastly different. So that that is a little tricky, but just as far as just I guess how good it is, how much I found good in it, I'm gonna give give it to La La Land. Makes sense. But and you know it's weird because I ended La La Land and I'm like Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone are meant to be. What <laughs> is going on? And I was like, I, I can't see them ever being with anyone else. And mm -hmm. But then I saw this and I was like, you know what? Gosling and Claire Foy have really good on-screen chemistry. Like their marriage to me is believable. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So darn you, Chazelle, playing with me like that. <laughs> but well, maybe Gosling is a very versatile actor, which is also very true. So there's that. Oh, I know, yeah. It's it's exciting. This one is definitely one to look for at the upcoming Oscars. Yeah. I would say cell mixing visuals, 
cinematography, those are the big probably three that I'd say would go for it. Costume designs are probably as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, set design. Set design, yeah, set design as well. Yeah, this could go for multiple things. I think that is worthy for all of those, at least a nomination for all of those in the Oscars this year. I'm I'm even wondering if Chazelle might get nominated for Best Director again. He could. He very well could. I mean, to be fair, uh, they, we are getting pretty close to Oscar bait season. That's happening in about a month or so, and that begins. Uh, maybe this is just early for that season. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you know, uh, Beautiful Boy also came out this weekend as well. Um, the Timothy Chalamet, Steve Carell, right. I think A24 film, which is, of course, bound to probably get some Oscar <laughs> nominations. Right. Uh, that also depends on if it's a if it's one of the good A24 films, because if it's not good, then it won't go anywhere. But if it is good, it'll probably get a lot of attention. Per yes. typical to every yes. other good A24 movie. From everything I've heard, it is good. Okay. Maybe I'll have so. to go see it eventually then. Yes, all the Oscar Beatty films have have not uh, done very much yet. So we are getting like I thought White Boy Rick was trying to be very Oscar Beatty. I, I think it did didn't do very well at all. Yeah, I have heard like nothing about that since it came out like what two or three weeks ago. Yeah, it was nothing. clearly Matthew McConaughey going for the Oscar again, and I was right. like, ah, it's not going to work. But we just got a Star Is Born, clearly Oscar. Yeah, that um, one's probably going to win enough few Oscars. I haven't even seen it yet, and I just have. A, I got this feeling because I've heard good things. I've seen the too. original, and I do want to see this new one, but I haven't got around to it yet. Yeah, I haven't got around to it yet either. Clearly, oh man, so much marketing material. I saw four mini trailers for it before the nun. Yeah, there's uh, oh, this movie. <laughs> it, it's kind of annoying because the trailer, the first trailer that that was released, is a good trailer. Yeah, but I kept seeing it over and over and over again. Every movie that I went to, especially when I had movie pass, that was at least playing one time in the theater. The A Star Is Born trailer, and oh, a good trailer after so long, it's just like, okay, I I get it now. Yeah, I've already been building up my Oscar contenders list. So before the Oscars are announced, Alan and I will do an Oscar predictions podcast to see what we think, uh, if if our thoughts lined up with it or not. There has been some really good, and I would even say some great uh, movies so far this year, but clearly a lot left to go that right. I'm sure are going to get nominated for the Oscar. And then, of course, we'll do our Oscar uh, our Oscar announcement reaction, <laughs> and then and then we will do our Oscar post discussion and tell you our thoughts on that. Make right. sure to stay tuned for those. Um, and next week we're fin- we're wrapping up another retrospective series. We are finally coming to the end. For now, it may never end. We may have started something that may never end. Right. Uh, considering this is the 40th anniversary of. Halloween came out 40 years ago in 1978. So we will be discussing Halloween. No, not the original, not the Rob Zombie remake. We've already done that. We're doing the sequel to Halloween. Don't be confused. It may be the third movie called Halloween, but it's actually the second sequel to the first one. Not the sequel of the first one that was originally released back in 1982 or whatever. Not that one. It's the sequel. It's the real sequel to the movie that already had a sequel and rebooted twice, but also the sequel. Different movie. This is a different timeline. Everything else is scrapped. Don't be confused. 
don't be confused. We do have an explanation up on YouTube, on Podbean. Just type in Halloween Timeline Explained or something of that variant. It's pretty easy to find. I will walk you through all of the timelines. Uh, and don't forget to click in the description. There is a graphic for you to look at while we talk so you don't have to just visualize 10 different timelines in your mind. So don't forget to look at that. And I highly suggest listening to that before watching this new Halloween movie because yeah all of those movies review we reviewed they don't count for anything now <laughs> they've Throw all out the been, window. they've all been scrubbed <laughs> again for the, the third time <sighs> yeah yeah pretty much um I'm kind of hoping this new Halloween will be great I have a feeling that it will be I will have made up my mind by the time we review come to review next week if naming a sequel the exact same title as the first in the is is brilliant or if it's just not brilliant at right. all right. if it's semi lazy uh we'll get to it anyways but uh, listeners thank you for joining us on our Damien Chazelle retrospective series i have no doubt we will be coming back in roughly 2 years probably to review his fifth film which i'm really looking forward to now I he too. can't I just don't think he can disappoint me, but I, I have a feeling eventually he will kind of let me down a little bit. That's usual for any kind of director. They'll have a some kind of movie that isn't as great as they as everybody else that they've done. Yep, it's inevitable. And But he's setting such a high bar where... Yeah. And now it's like, will any of his movies not make it to the Oscars like every year or something? Right. <laughs> Inevitably, they probably won't. Right. But nevertheless, very excited. He's not a corporate wannabe sellout. He is a true filmmaker. Excited for that. Excited to review Halloween and finish up with that. Don't get me wrong. I really am. That was just me letting exhaling a breath. <laughs> not a sigh. Not a sigh. Okay. And then we also have... Um, we're, I don't know if we have announced it yet, but we're going to have a Bogart retrospective. That's true. Yeah, we just talked about this not too long ago. Uh, originally, it was going to be Hitchcock, and then we swapped it for a Bogart, uh, a few movies from Humphrey Bogart that he started, which I'm very excited for because I've always seen two, maybe one of these, which is Casablanca. Yep. Yeah, they are classics. Casablanca was best picture of the year. Uh, they're definite classics. I can't wait to review Bogart. I've loved Bogart. And hopefully, listeners, we will turn you on to some classic movies. Uh, if you're kind of tired of the riffraff of what's coming out of the cinema today, well, hopefully we'll give you some uh, classics to watch and enjoy as well. I know we also have an anime review coming up. Yes, we have Akira. And most recently released is Your Name, I believe. Yeah. Which would be very interesting having... Because both these are kind of cultural phenomenons. Akira more than your name, but it'd be interesting to talk about both of those. When we get there uh, and have them and con have them more or less contrast each other uh, when it comes to maybe social impact, different things of that nature, and how anime has changed. Yada yada yada. We'll get there. And if you're hankering for our thoughts on some anime, we did already do a little bit of anime earlier this year with our Ghost in the Shell retrospective series. Go back in the archives, check out that. You'll hear our anime thoughts on that. We'll we'll have more of those coming to you very soon. But before that, we will be continuing a tradition of a Halloween special that will be released on Halloween Day. The first one started with, well, Halloween. 
And then the second one was Psycho, and now we're choosing another classic, Poltergeist. I'm quite excited. I've seen it once. I own the Blu-ray now, so I'm pretty excited to return to it and talk about that. I'm really excited as well. There is a lot of production history that went into that movie, uh, how it's impacted as well. I've also been watching all of the Poltergeist sequels and the the remake. Oh, I've seen that. I saw it in the theater when it came out. Oh, dear. I do remember much from it, though. We, I will give you my brief thoughts on those as well. And I'm very excited for our Halloween special. Look for that October 31st. We've got a lot of great content coming to you. If you want even more content, if you want some bonus podcast, then for the price of a Starbucks chai mocha latte, you can get bonus podcasts. Uh, every other week, we give our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, commentaries, Q&As. It's all there for a cheap price. And it really does help us listeners keep the lights on. Uh, It keeps the podcast ad-free just by your generous small donation. And you get great content in return. It's a win-win. We really appreciate the support. Make sure to let your friends know about our Patreon page. Just type in Silver Screen Guide Patreon. Or there's always a big link in the description below. Pretty noticeable for you to click on. Make sure to like and subscribe. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. That does help us in the rankings. That does help our podcast get noticed better. If you love talking about movies then and uh, listening to them, then make sure to share that with your friends. We love talking about movies, and we definitely love talking about them with you. You guys are great. We do have a great listenership, and we want that to grow because we just love talking about movies with you guys and uh, movies are meant to be experienced with other people not in a vacuum by yourself so uh, thank you so much listeners for joining us on this podcast and we will catch you next time Uh, of course, they also use violins, which is still kind of interesting because he recorded them. Hang on a minute. Not now, Google. <laughs> what are you doing? My, my, my computer automatically connects to it. Nice. It came into one plug. I turned off the mic. I just, I just plugged it. Oh, okay.